The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. Talk to you soon. Welcome to This Day in History class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis, subbing in this week for your host, Tracy V. Wilson. Today it's December 12th, and the Oaks Colliery exploded on this day in 1866. So... We're in Great Britain, and the Industrial Revolution has, well, revolutionized industry. Coal is fueling the boom, but to keep the machine of progress going, we've got to get that coal out of the ground. So that brings us to the town of Barnsley. That's located in Yorkshire, northern England, kind of halfway between Sheffield and Leeds. That's where we find the Oaks Colliery. Now, a colliery is a term used to describe both a coal mine itself and the, uh, the agglomeration of buildings, offices, and infrastructure around the mine. Basically, the whole complex. Now, prior to the arrival of the coal industry, Barnsley was known for its linen manufacturing, but the land was rich in coal, and industrialists were keen to exploit the land's riches. The Barnsley coal seam ran deep below the surface of the ground. It was particularly prized because it contained numerous types of coal, which all formed way back in the Carboniferous period. So we're talking about 360 to 300 million years ago. Now, miners sank the first shaft at the Oaks Colliery in 1830 and were able to extract hard coals, which are used in train engines and steamships, as well as soft coals that were mixed with other minerals to make coke, a fuel similar to charcoal. The three shafts at the Oaks Colliery were nearly 300 meters deep each. But over the decades, the colliery experienced several explosions and disasters. In the 1830s, for instance, dozens of boys working in the mine drowned when it flooded during a thunderstorm. In the 1840s, Nearly 100 miners died in several explosions, and the Oaks became regarded as one of the more dangerous places in the region to work. By the 1850s, workers were fed up, and hundreds of them went on strike for 10 weeks, claiming management was incompetent. 
But eventually the workers had to go back to work as they were at risk of starvation. That brings us to the morning of December 12, 1866. Hundreds of people showed up to work that day. Christmas was just around the corner, so very few people skipped work and they were eager to make money for the upcoming holiday. And in 1866, December the 12th fell on a Wednesday, and Wednesdays at the mine were the day workers could make up for past absenteeism. So with hundreds of people at work that day, you had hewers who would cut the coal out of the ground, and you had hurriers who moved the coal to the shaft bottom to be lifted to the top. There were men to drive the horses in the shaft, and young boys were called trappers. It was their job to open ventilation doors to allow wagons to pass through. But about 1.15 that day, right near the end of the day shift, a massive explosion tore through the mine. Jets of fire damp had ignited. Now, that's the name given flammable gases, which could have included methane at the time. The noise could be heard three miles away, and dust and soot traveled even further than that. Ventilation systems were damaged, and fresh air wasn't piped into the mine shafts for several minutes. Within 45 minutes of the explosion, rescuers were able to bring out nearly 20 men who had been working near the surface. They were all badly burned, and only six survived. Later that evening, so many volunteers had shown up to help with the rescue effort, people had to be turned away. Sadly, all the other workers deeper under the earth were killed. Would-be rescuers found the bodies of fathers and sons locked in a final embrace, and of horse cart drivers draped dead over their ponies. They had all died of suffocation, breathing the carbon dioxide of the mine. Rescue work continued throughout the night with a search for survivors, ending up a search only for bodies. The next morning, many rescuers evacuated for fear of another explosion. One man, Matthew Haig, who worked as a night deputy at the colliery, had survived an explosion there two decades prior and recognized the warning signs. By 9 a.m., the pit exploded again, though nearly 30 men were still below. A third explosion followed later that evening, and on day three, rescuers found a man named Samuel Brown still alive. Brown wasn't one of the original workers, though. He was a rescuer who had gone down the day before. He was removed from the pit, and he was the last man found alive. The next several days saw 14 more minor explosions, and the decision was made to abandon rescue efforts and to fill the pits. All in all, the tally was estimated at over 360 people dead. It was the worst mining disaster in the world at the time, and remains the worst in an English coalfield history. An official inquest into the explosion was opened almost immediately, though the cause was never identified. The disaster helped spur some reforms in safety regulation, the mining remained dangerous for years. New research conducted in 2016 by volunteers with the Dern Valley Landscape Partnership puts the final tally of deaths at 383. Among the dead were boys as young as 10 years old. Today in the region, monuments exist to both those who were killed and the volunteer rescuers who lost their lives. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. Come back tomorrow when we get to know one of the most famous world travelers in history. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hello, history lovers. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was December 12, 1899. Dr. George Franklin Grant received U.S. patent number 638,920 for the first ever golf tee. Grant was born in Oswego, New York. There, he worked for a dentist, Dr. Albert Smith, first running errands and eventually as an assistant. Smith encouraged him to pursue dentistry, and he left New York for Boston, where he continued working as a dental assistant and was admitted to the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. He graduated in 1870, becoming the second African-American ever to graduate from Harvard Dental School. The next year, Harvard hired him as an assistant in the Department of Mechanical Dentistry. During this time, Grant specialized in treating patients with cleft palate, a congenital condition marked by a split or opening in the roof of the mouth. He invented and patented the oblate palate, a prosthetic device that helped his patients speak and eat. Eventually, Grant was promoted to instructor in treatment for cleft palate and cognate diseases making him the first African-American faculty member at the university. He was also a founding member and later president of the Harvard Odontological Society. After working at Harvard for nearly two decades, Grant left to start his own dental practice. But outside of his dental practice, Grant was an avid golfer. His daughter, Frances, caddied for him on the meadow he built next to their home in the Boston suburb of Arlington Heights. The family moved to Beacon Hill, but went back to Arlington Heights to golf from time to time. Though Grant enjoyed golfing, he was not a fan of the messy process of teeing the ball. At the time, golfers had to pinch moist sand together to create a tee. So he decided to create a tee that would simplify the process. He filed a patent application for his golf tee on July 1st, 1899, and on December 12th, he received the first patent for a wooden golf tee. The patent application described that the tee had to firmly support the ball and also not interfere with the swing of the golf club. The tee had a flexible head and a rigid base that was preferably made of wood and tapered to a point to be inserted in the ground. The ball rested in a ring-shaped seat on top of the tee. Using this tee would ensure that the ball was always at the same height, unlike sand tees. Though his invention was a lot like the modern tee, Grant did not market it or capitalize on it. He had tees manufactured in Arlington Heights and gave them to his friends and playing partners, but didn't take the invention any further than that. He died of liver disease in 1910. In the 1920s, Dr. William Lowell, also a dentist, invented and popularized the Ready Tee. 
At that point, using a wooden golf tee became the norm. He patented the tee a few years after it found success, but he spent a lot of time and money fighting patent infringement. The United States Golf Association recognized Grant as the original inventor of the golf tee in 1991. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you know you already spend too much time on social media, spend some of that time with us at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Email still works. Send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. We're here every day, so you know where to find us. Bye. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're looking at how an amateur art thief turned a painting with a mysterious smile into one of the most iconic works of art on the planet. The day was December 12th, 1913. Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa portrait was recovered from a hotel room in Florence two years after being stolen from the Louvre in Paris. The man behind the brazen robbery was Italian immigrant Vincenzo Perugia. He wasn't an expert cat burglar or even an art connoisseur. He was a handyman. And most crucially, he had once done a job for the Louvre. In fact, one year before he stole the Mona Lisa, Perugia was the one who installed the glass door and protective case that housed that very painting. This meant he knew how the Mona Lisa was fixed to its frame, as well as how to unfix it. 
You might imagine that Perugia targeted the Mona Lisa over the other paintings he helped install because of the portrait's world renown. However, at the time, the Mona Lisa wasn't famous outside the art world. In fact, the theft of the painting is how it became so widely known. Before it was stolen, most people couldn't have told you the name of the portrait. Although, to be fair, it is called by different names. Da Vinci started work on the painting in the early 1500s as a commission piece for a wealthy Florentine merchant named Francesco del Gioconda. His surname provides the lesser-known title of the painting, which is La Gioconda, or as the French say, La Gioconda. The subject of the painting, and its other namesake, is believed to be Francesco's wife, Lisa. The name Mona Lisa roughly translates to My Lady Lisa, and contrary to what you may have heard about da Vinci falling in love with his subject, the title is likely intended from her husband's perspective. Unfortunately, the Renaissance painter never got around to finishing and delivering Lisa's portrait. When he died in 1519, it was one of many unfinished works he left behind. In the 19th century, art critics came to view the portrait as a master work, but it wouldn't become a household name until decades later, when Perugia stole it. The thief came to know the painting while on the job in 1910, but he selected it as a target a year later mostly because it was small enough to hide in his clothes. The oil-on-wood painting is smaller than you might think, measuring just 30 by 21 inches and weighing about 18 pounds. Of course, it weighed over 200 pounds when you factor in the frame and protective case, but again, Perugia knew exactly how to drop that extra weight. He stole the painting on August 21st, 1911. That was a Monday, which meant the museum was closed for cleaning. Accounts vary on how Perugia got inside the building. Some say he strolled right in through an unlocked door, while others say he hid overnight in a closet and emerged when the coast was clear. In either case, Perugia dressed like he belonged there. Since he had worked for the Louvre before, he already had the white outfit worn by its workers. He simply walked over to the Mona Lisa, removed the panel painting from its frame and case, and slipped it under his smock. He left the case where it was and ditched the frame on a staircase on his way out of the museum. The thief hit a small snag when he discovered the door was locked, but in a stroke of good luck, a friendly plumber noticed him struggling and opened the door with his own key. If that all sounds remarkably easy, that's because it was. At the time, most museums were poorly guarded and didn't even have alarms. The Louvre was no exception. It had 400 rooms full of priceless artwork, but only 200 guards to watch it all, with even fewer on the night shift. One result of this lax security was that Perugia didn't have to do much planning for his heist. Another result was that no one noticed the Mona Lisa was even missing until a full day later. Although to be fair, it wasn't unusual for works of art to be removed from time to time, either to be photographed or cleaned, so most of the staff probably saw the empty space and thought nothing of it. Once the news broke, 
it quickly snowballed into a national scandal. The French public was outraged, and dozens of detectives were tasked with tracking down the stolen art. Images of the Mona Lisa began appearing in newspapers around the world, transforming a relatively obscure painting into one of the most recognizable. Even the absence of the painting started to draw a crowd, with visitors flocking to the Louvre just to see the empty space where the painting used to hang. The police hunt for the unknown art thief dragged on for the next two years. During that time, the police chased every lead they could, even questioning a young Pablo Picasso because he had been caught buying stolen art pieces before. That proved to be a dead end, as did all their other leads. Detectives came the closest when they interviewed Perugia about the crime not once, but twice. However, they ultimately cleared him after determining that he couldn't possibly have pulled off such a high-profile crime. In the end, it was Perugia's own poor judgment that got him caught. He kept the painting stashed in a trunk in his small Paris apartment for the better part of two years. By late 1913, though, he decided he'd waited long enough and contacted an art dealer and gallery owner in Florence to arrange for the painting's sale. A meeting was set up, but unbeknownst to Perugia, the dealer had taken his letter straight to the police. On December 10th, he arrived at a hotel in Florence to hand over the painting, but was swiftly arrested instead. After his capture, Perugia claimed he was only trying to return the Mona Lisa to its native home of Italy. Apparently, he was under the false impression that Napoleon had stolen the artwork for France in the late 18th century. It's true that Napoleon's armies had plundered cultural artifacts from many of the countries they invaded, but that wasn't the case with the Mona Lisa. It had actually been brought to France by Leonardo da Vinci himself, and following the artist's death, it was purchased fair and square by King Francis I in the 16th century. Besides, even if Perugia believed his own story, his supposedly patriotic motivation was clearly a farce. In addition to the art dealer he had already contacted in Florence, Perugia also had a list of American art collectors, showing that he definitely intended to sell the painting and didn't especially care which country it wound up in. It's worth noting that rumors have circulated claiming that Perugia was working for a German art forger who planned to exploit the Mona Lisa's disappearance by selling fake copies on the black market. That story was never substantiated, and Perugia was the only one ever arrested for the crime. He was sentenced to one year and 15 days in jail, but even that relatively light sentence was later reduced to a mere seven months and nine days. It probably helped that no one was injured in his crime, and that the painting was able to be recovered unharmed. The Mona Lisa was eventually returned to the Louvre. It still hangs there today, nestled safely behind bulletproof glass under the watchful eye of multiple security guards, cameras, and alarms. It's estimated that more than six million people view the painting each year, though on average, they spend only about 15 seconds actually looking at it. That makes it seem like most people are just ticking off an item on their bucket list 
rather than genuinely appreciating what's on display. But hey, it's still better than the two years the painting spent locked inside of some random guy's trunk. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.